Welcome to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Caleb Robertson, and I am a medical student in the Medical College of Georgia. Today, I'm joined by my fellow classmate, Sanya Dudani. Welcome, Sanya. Thanks for the intro, Caleb. During today's episode, we will be discussing the evaluation and management of syncope in the pediatric patient. We will also discuss the key components of the history and physical for a child that comes in with syncope to determine the underlying cause. Our discussion will include the pathophysiology, potential etiologies, and treatment of syncope. To help with our discussion, we are honored to have Dr. John Plowden here today. Dr. Plowden is a pediatric cardiologist at MCG and actually graduated from MCG himself. He has over 35 years of experience in pediatric cardiology and will be able to provide us with valuable insight on the topic. Welcome, Dr. Plowden. Thank you, Caleb and Sonia. I am looking forward to our discussion today. Dr. Plowden, you must have so many stories over the years. From your perspective, why is pediatric syncope such an important topic to cover? Syncope in children is important partially because it's very common, but also because families get very worried about this. So thankfully, most causes of syncope in pediatric patients are benign, but it's very important for us to reassure the families if there's not a problem. All right. Let's first establish what we mean by the term syncope. Syncope is the sudden and transient loss of consciousness and postural muscle tone. The episode should resolve without any intervention. It is due to a temporary decrease in either blood flow or metabolic substrates to the brain, such as glucose. It's what we normally refer to as fainting or passing out. So how common is syncope in children? So about 15 to 25% of children will have at least one syncopal episode before adulthood. And 3% of all pediatric emergency department visits are due to a syncopal episode. Interestingly, it is more common in females than males. I know that syncope can be due to several causes, and some are more worrisome than others, right? That's right, Caleb. There are several different types, and it is important to be able to distinguish between them to help with appropriate evaluation and management. Sonia, why don't you start off our discussion with a clinical case? Sure. We have a 16-year-old male who presents to his pediatrician with potentially five syncable episodes in the past two months. How long did each of the episodes last, and how was he feeling before and after the event? Each episode has only lasted about a minute or less, and he reports he knows when he is about to faint because he feels dizzy and his heart starts racing. Otherwise, he denies fatigue or confusion after these episodes. He was seen in the emergency department after the first couple of episodes, but they sent him home after saying everything was normal and instructed him to drink more water. However, these episodes have continued. When discussing how long episodes last, it is important to clarify what parents think is the beginning and end of the episode. Ideally, we should know how long the patient was actually unconscious, but sometimes parents may include either the time before or after the episode until they fully regain consciousness. So when are these episodes occurring? He's a varsity soccer player at his high school, and three of his syncable episodes have been following practice. His other two episodes have happened following pickup basketball games. Okay, so these events seem to be occurring following physical exertion. It is also important to confirm whether the events occurred during exercise or immediately after. What else can you tell me? Did he ever hit his head, vomit afterwards? Does he remember the episodes? No head trauma. He states that he blacks out and wakes up with everyone always standing around him. He always feels nauseated after these episodes, but denies vomiting. He is otherwise healthy and takes no medications. He denies any illicit drug use. There is no known family history of sudden cardiac death or cardiac disorders. Great case. This clinical scenario is definitely something I've encountered many times. This patient has features of what we call reflex syncope, and about 75% of syncopal cases that present to the pediatrician are due to this. That's due to a vasovagal event, right? Yes, you're on the right track. Another common name for this is neurocardiogenic syncope, and it is a type of reflex syncope. 
So the reflex syncope can be divided into three categories, vasovagal, situational syncope, and carotid sinus syndrome, the last of which we don't often see in pediatrics. Sonia, what do you know about vasovagal syncope? Vasovagal syncope usually occurs when someone changes their position. For example, when you stand, your blood will pool in your legs because of gravity. This causes a decrease in venous return, resulting in decreased cardiac output as well as diminished cerebral perfusion. When the body cannot adequately compensate for these changes, you faint. That's right. What about syncopal episodes due to emotion or distress? Is this true syncope? There's situational syncope, which has the same pathophysiology as reflex syncope. This type of episode typically has a specific trigger, such as blood, pain, or fear. This can also occur while stretching, also called stretch syncope, or when girls are having their hair brushed or braided by someone else, also called hair grooming syncope. So this is what happens when people faint at the sight of blood. Exactly. There's also psychogenic syncope, which can commonly be confused with situational syncope. Psychogenic syncope is not a type of reflex syncope because there's no physiologic change occurring. It can occur in response to certain emotions or stress, and it's typically due to conversion disorder. Caleb, what do you know about conversion disorder? Conversion disorder is when a patient experiences neurologic symptoms, but they are inconsistent with the disease and no underlying cause can be found. These symptoms could be weakness, abnormal movements, or seizures. An important point to remember when you suspect psychogenic syncope is that you should also check for emotional or sexual abuse or any other major stressors that could be triggering these episodes. That's where a thorough history will be very important. Okay, let's quickly recap what we have gone over. One of the most common types of syncope in children is reflex syncope. It can be divided into three categories, which are vasovagal syncope, situational syncope, and carotid sinus syndrome. Carotid sinus syndrome does not commonly occur in children, so we will not be discussing it in today's episode. There's also psychogenic syncope, which is usually due to a conversion disorder. I have a quick question, Dr. Plowden, before we move on. Is POTS, or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, considered a type of reflex syncope? No, it's essential to clarify that POTS is often mistakenly grouped with other types of reflex syncope. In reality, most patients with POTS do not experience syncope. However, for those who do, it's typically a vasovagal syncope due to the autonomic dysfunction that they already have. So what about orthostatic hypotension? Orthostatic hypotension has a very specific definition. You must have a drop in your systolic blood pressure by 20 millimeters of mercury or a drop in your diastolic blood pressure by 10 millimeters of mercury within three minutes of standing when compared to the supine blood pressure. It also has many different causes such as volume depletion, chronic illnesses, or medications. That's right. However, it is rare for orthostatic hypertension alone to cause syncope. There's usually another element involved. It is important for us to identify this and treat accordingly. So when should we be concerned about a cardiac cause for syncope? Good question. A cardiac etiology is a less common cause for syncope in pediatrics, but it's one of the most important types to distinguish, and it's one that we can't miss. That's why almost every patient coming in for syncope gets an EKG to look for predisposing conditions that might cause cardiac syncope. About 2 to 4% of syncopal episodes in patients under 21 are due to cardiac causes. So, Caleb, what do you know about cardiac syncope? Cardiac syncope occurs when the heart is unable to pump adequate blood to the brain. Like in other types of syncope, our bodies react to this by losing consciousness, hoping this will increase perfusion to the brain. Cardiac syncope usually happens during exercise because this is when the ability of the heart to pump blood to the brain is really tested. Great job. Cardiac syncope can also be divided into three categories that reflect the underlying cause. Sonia, can you name the three? The first is due to structural heart disease. The second is arrhythmias. And finally, the third is myocardial dysfunction. Great job. 
So now that we know a little bit about different types of syncope, let's get back to our case. So far, we have a 16-year-old previously healthy male who's been having syncopal episodes for the past two months. Dr. Platten, let's go over the key information to gather when a teenager presents with syncope. When taking the history of a child with syncope, the main goal is to keep in mind is that you're trying to find the underlying cause. If you're able to pin this down, it will make it much easier to determine if the episodes are life-threatening events as well as to how to construct an ideal treatment plan. What questions would you ask to help with finding the underlying cause? Well, as we discussed, there are many different causes of syncope, so there are multiple factors to keep in mind. For example, ask about the events surrounding the syncopal event, both before and after. Try to get as much information as you can from the child, but also don't hesitate to talk to the parents or the witnesses if needed. Witnesses can sometimes have a lot more information to tell than the patient themselves. Sonia, can you think of other important items you would want to ask about? I think it would be important to know the duration of the episode and the time of day it occurred. These can sometimes be hints as to what the cause is. That's correct. Duration and time of day would be important to know since this could also indicate psychogenic syncope. For example, if the episode occurs at a certain time each day or in front of a large crowd that triggers the episode, this could hint to psychogenic syncope. For these cases, the patient usually experiences longer episodes that can last up to an hour. In comparison with free reflex syncope, the prodromal symptoms and the syncopal episode itself typically last under a minute. What other parts of the history would you want to ask about? Well, you just mentioned prodromal symptoms. A lot of times a person may experience certain symptoms prior to their syncopal episodes. This includes dizziness, vision changes, a warm feeling, nausea, headache, palpitations, diaphoresis, or numbness and tingling. So it would be important to ask about those. That's correct. Patients can have multiple of these symptoms you mentioned right before the fainting occurs, or even none at all. Regardless, it is critical to ask about all of them. So how can we use these symptoms to narrow our differential diagnosis? Different types of syncope have different signs that can hint towards that diagnosis. We just discussed how duration and time of day can clue us in on psychogenic syncope. Cardiac syncope would be suspected when a patient has no prodromal signs, has no pulse during the episode, needs CPR during syncope, or faints while exercising. Caleb, what is some other important information that you should ask about to narrow your differential? Family history is also another crucial component to ask about. Many types of syncope can run in families. For example, if a patient's family has a history of cardiac arrhythmias or sudden cardiac death, this warrants a further look into possible cardiac causes. Symptoms like chest pain and palpitations also warrant a further look. Yes, family history is very important. Okay, let's get back to our case. Tell me more about the symptoms that the child has surrounding the episode. Well, he recalls that he always feels like his heart is racing before he blacks out. So the heart racing uh, he reports before an episode is important to note. Tachycardia is a common prodromal symptom to occur before benign types of syncope. Cardiac types of syncope have no prodromal symptoms, but we cannot rule it out just yet. I'm also glad to hear that these episodes are after practice. Why do you think that is? Syncope during exercise, which suggests cardiac syncope, right? In our case, it appears all of his episodes happen after exercise and not during, which is a good sign. This is very important to differentiate. It's common to see patients who are described as having syncope during exercise, but upon further questioning, it actually is occurring shortly after the cessation of activity. Cardiac syncope would more likely occur abruptly and during physical exertion. Let's now talk about his physical exam. An important part of the physical exam that I feel is often overlooked in a stable clinical setting are vital signs. This includes orthostatic blood pressures, which we discussed some earlier. But for orthostatic vital signs to be beneficial, you need to make sure that they are taken properly. 
Most literature states blood pressure should be taken about 15 minutes after lying supine and then 15 minutes after standing up. That's often hard to do in practice with the limited amount of time that we have for visits. So I usually take a blood pressure after three minutes in the supine position and then at one and three minutes after standing. So, Sonia, what are the vital signs of physical exam for our patient? On exam, our patient's vital signs were a heart rate of 78 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 12, and a temperature of 37.1 degrees Celsius. While supine, his blood pressure is 122 over 76 and heart rate is 78. Upon standing, he has a blood pressure of 110 over 70 and a heart rate of 94 at one minute, and then a blood pressure of 114 over 80 and a heart rate of 98 at three minutes. His cardiovascular exam revealed regular rate and rhythm, normal S1 and S2 with no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. His pulses were two plus and equal bilaterally in his upper and lower extremities. The rest of his physical exam was normal. That's excellent, Sonia. It is important when we do our orthostatic blood pressures to also get heart rates. And what we noticed here was that the heart rate went from 78 to 94 to 96. That is a normal response. Generally, anything under 30 beats per minute is normal. In our patients with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, that number can be a lot higher, even above 40 beats per minute. So in this case, this patient does not only not have POTS, but this is actually a normal response, which is very commonly seen in patients with garden variety vasovagal syncope. Is it usual for patients with syncope to have normal physical exams and vital signs? It depends on the type of syncope. Certain types such as vasovagal syncope or psychogenic syncope can have absolutely normal physical exams. When it comes to cardiac, you will likely have some type of abnormal cardiovascular finding. Okay, so let's pull all of our information together, see if we can narrow the differential diagnosis for our patient. Well, because of the prodromal symptoms, brief nature of the syncopal episodes, and negative family history and normal physical exam, I'm thinking that vasovagal syncope seems the most probable. But we also still need to consider cardiac syncope as our patient had prodromal palpitations, and this is a must-not-miss diagnosis. What test should we order to evaluate for a cardiac etiology? Well, as I said before, every patient presenting with a syncopal episode should get an EKG. It is relatively benign and can be very essential. KG will screen for conduction disturbances, AV block, ventricular hypertrophy, or other disorders that may be the etiology for the syncope. What about labs like a CBC or a CMP? Well, while labs like a CBC, CMP, urine toxicology screen, and pregnancy tests may be reasonable to get under certain circumstances, they are not generally needed for the average pediatric syncope patient. Physicians should use their clinical judgment to determine which labs and tests they would like to order. Are there any other studies specific to syncope? Another potentially helpful study is the tilt table study. Could you both explain to the listeners how this study is performed? Sure. The purpose of a head upright tilt table study is to assess for autonomic dysfunction as well as to help differentiate between the types of reflex syncope. The patient is strapped to a table that has the ability to move up to 90 degrees but is typically put at about 60 degrees. The patient starts supine and is slowly moved up to the desired position while vital signs and an EKG tracing are monitored simultaneously. This test is considered positive if it triggers symptoms like lightheadedness and dizziness or if there are abnormal changes in vital signs such as hypotension or bradycardia. In some patients, this test will trigger a syncopal episode. If these signs and symptoms are present during the tilt table test, it suggests the type of syncope you're dealing with is a type of reflex syncope. But even if the test is negative, meaning none of the signs and symptoms we mentioned are present, the result still has a lot of value at suggesting the cause of the episode is not due to reflex syncope. This would indicate we need to start workups for other causes. 
There's debate over the diagnostic value and method of the tilt table test. Many pediatric cardiologists don't feel that it is necessary or beneficial. And there are a lot of false positives seen as well, but it can be helpful in specific circumstances. Dr. Plowden, what if the EKG showed no abnormalities? Would you be confident that our patient is experiencing vasovagal syncopal episodes and not cardiac? Yeah, most likely. With a normal physical exam and a normal EKG, we can exclude some of the cardiac causes for syncope, but we also need to listen carefully to the history of the event. This may give us clues that we need to look deeper, which may include tests like an echo or stress test, Holter, event recorder, or even occasionally inserting an implantable loop recorder. Should we refer our patient to a specialist? For vasovagal syncope, the general physician or other healthcare provider can typically provide anticipatory guidance in management and prevention. If the provider is uncomfortable with treating it, they can always refer the patient. But the other reason for a referral might be the attitude of the family and the parents especially. Many of them are quite uncomfortable when their child faints and need some reassurance from someone who deals with this more often. So in that case, it is fine to refer them on at the family's request. However, if there are clinical signs and symptoms of a cardiac cause, it is important to refer that patient to the appropriate specialist. And of course, anytime a patient requires resuscitation by CPR or defibrillation during a syncopal episode, they should be seen by a cardiologist. Otherwise, patients with a normal physical exam, negative cardiac family history, and normal EKG do not usually require a referral. It is important to look at the patient's history and base your decision off of that. In regards to history, what if witnesses of the syncopal episode describe seizure-like activity during the episode? That's another very important point. It is common to see some brief abnormal movements in association with vasovagal syncope. This is due to poor cerebral perfusion and is not the result of a seizure disorder. These patients do not have a typical postictal period, and there's no need for them to be referred to a neurologist. More prolonged episodes in which it takes longer than a few minutes to recover can be due to seizures, and those patients absolutely should be seen by a neurologist. I actually once saw a patient refer to me to rule out a cardiac etiology for seizures. The seizures were described as brief with no postictal period. I was concerned that this was really a syncopal event, so I performed a tilt-table test. It turned out to be a little more exciting than I expected. He completely flatlined, but the heart rate recovered when we lowered the table. He had some associated seizure-like activity with this, which was brief. This is an example of cardio-inhibitory syncope. Treatment of the syncope with fluids and salt resulted in no further problems. That's a good story to keep in mind. Going back to our case, even though our patient's symptoms are most likely not life-threatening nor due to a cardiac etiology, I'm still concerned that they are recurrent. He has been lucky that all the events have been witnessed and he has never had any head trauma. What type of anticipatory guidance could we provide for the patient and his family? And is there any treatment that we can prescribe? A great place to start is to educate our patient to increase his fluid and salt intake, especially in the morning. Taking both salt and fluid helps by increasing the amount of blood volume in your vessels so that your body is able to maintain adequate perfusion to your brain. Thinking along that same point, Caleb, can you think of any other advice you'd like to give our patient? We should tell him to lay down and elevate his feet when he starts to feel prodromal symptoms. This will allow gravity to help get blood to his brain instead of fighting against it, which will help prevent episodes. We should also tell him to avoid things like caffeine, alcohol, and sugary beverages because they work as diuretics, which will lower his intravascular volume. That's right. Another point to keep in mind is that regular exercise can benefit patients with reflex syncope because it helps improve the functioning of the autonomic nervous system. So in this patient, he should continue playing sports and being active while he works to stop these syncopal episodes. And if all these lifestyle changes still don't work, 
there are medications that can be tried. How often do patients follow up in clinic for syncope? Usually I ask my syncopal patients to follow up every three months. However, if the patient and parents are comfortable with ways to prevent syncopal episodes and also treat them when they occur, then there's no need for them to follow up unless there is a concern. What a great discussion today. Sadly, it's already time to wrap up our episode. Let's quickly summarize the highlights of today's discussions. Tanya, could you start us off? Sure. Syncope is defined as a sudden transient loss of consciousness and postural muscle tone that is relieved without any intervention. It occurs because there is a temporary decrease in either blood flow or glucose in the brain. There are many different causes of syncope. The most common is reflex syncope, and other causes include cardiac or psychogenic. When taking a history, it is important to ask about specific characteristics of the syncopal episode, as well as if there's a family history of cardiac conditions or syncope in general. Any abnormal cardiovascular neurologic physical exam findings warrant further testing, as well as referral to the appropriate specialist. When it comes to treatment of reflex syncope, like we said before, increasing fluid and salt intake is a great place to start, as well as avoiding diuretics like caffeine, alcohol, and sugary beverages. Patients should also take steps to prevent syncope by laying down and elevating their feet when they start having prodromal symptoms. And on top of it all, it's important to remember to exercise regularly. Exactly. Overall, syncope is a very common presenting complaint in pediatrics that can indicate both benign and occasionally life-threatening processes. Because of this, it is very important for the pediatrician to feel comfortable knowing when to manage it on their own and when to refer this out. Thanks again, Dr. Plowden, for joining us today to discuss syncope and the pediatric patient. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed our discussion today. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Melissa Lefevre, who provided editing and peer review of today's discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. Clinical vignette cases presented are based on hypothetical patient scenarios. Free CME credit is also available for this episode. Please refer to our show notes and website for the link. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast. Mm-hmm.